What's your mom? A working mom. And what did she write? The working the mom. The working mom blueprint. blueprint. And what should they do? Go buy, buy it today. The Working Mom Blueprint is now available wherever books are sold. Go grab it for yourself, for a friend, for a sister, for a colleague, so we can help working moms, all moms, to thrive, not just survive on their motherhood journey. Welcome to the Modern Mommy Dog Podcast. I'm Dr. Whitney Caceres. I'm a full-time pediatrician and a full-time modern mom. I speak and write about equipping mamas to raise resilient, healthy children and to invest in their own social-emotional health along the way. Each week, we'll give you the practical tools you need to win at parenting without losing yourself. And welcome back to the Modern Mommy Doc podcast. Today, I'm talking with Eve Rodsky, the author of Fair Play. And if you guys do not know this book already, have not read this book already, like, please stop the recording right now. Go run and get it. Go on your online. Go to the store. Just go grab it right now. It's going to change your life, I promise. I'm so excited to have you here, Eve. Thank you for being here with us. Well, thank you. I feel the same way about you. And I think um, it was fun to get to realize that as fellow authors, we have a lot of things we've come to similarly, I think, as we work with women and mothers. So it's nice to have somebody, an ally, um, also supporting mothers and women. Yeah, I I appreciate that. And I think the thing that you guys as listeners are going to find as I talk with Eve is that the reason this book really spoke to me is there are some philosophical pieces in it that talk about why and what are the issues that are at play. But I really love that it's just practical. It's like an actual playbook for how to do this. Because I think a lot of times as those of us who are trying to support women and support families and help them thrive, that We spend a lot of time talking about this is the way you should think about it, but it's so important that we have actually actionable steps that we can take within our families to make change. So I love that. Yeah. Yeah. To have people around them who support and understand, um, you know, I I had a woman reach out to me saying, you know, I just went into couples therapy and I started to bring up the the concept of unpaid labor and the second shift and women's time not being valuable. And the therapist said, do you mean chores? And so I said, you know, if anybody, I, shame on you if you don't know after this pandemic um, what unpaid labor is. <laughs> you know, this is right. we're in Earth 2.0 now, and we have to start paying attention. Um, and so I appreciate it because you are, again, you are a professional. You touch uh, people's lives on a daily basis with your practice. And so um, I call on other professionals to also invest in the research of cognitive labor. Uh, burnout, what's been happening to women, and our assumptions about who does housework and childcare. Totally. Okay, so tell me why you wrote this book. Like, tell me what happened in your own life that made you say, I got to get this message out for people. I don't know if you felt that way too, Whitney, that, you know, sometimes it's hard to like infuse some of your own stories (laughs) into your your journey of writing. But um, it was, I had to really think about, you know, I didn't think Fair Play was going to be a book. Um, I think they call research me search. It was a journey to understand what was happening to me and um, to start taking agency in my own life. I don't like to use the word fix because there's no fix. You know, everything is a practice. (laughs) So, but I think what was happening to me was my mother's, uh, I grew up in a single mother household. She's a um, professor of social change. And she also often says that change happens in three stages where there's pre-consciousness to consciousness, and then the fight for solutions in your own life and and in the lives of those around you. And and in pre-consciousness, my pre-consciousness days, 
I, I literally had no concept or understanding of, of who was going to do what in our home. Seth and I never had a discussion about who was going to do what in after we had kids. We thought we had, a, I thought I had a feminist husband. I thought things felt sort of fair. He would pick up, you know, take out if I was working late at my nonprofit. Um, I supported him. I made more money when we first started, started dating. Uh, then I worked, went to work for a nonprofit and then he started supporting me. Um, and he paid off some of my loans for me. Uh, we were sort of doing equal, fair trades, I thought, um, helping each other. We both went to uh, you know the laundromat with our quarters and took turns doing laundry in our apartment in New York. And then, you know, Zach came along in New York and things, um, you know, sort of everything started to fall apart. Um, I felt completely... Um, isolated in my workplace. I didn't feel like I had the supports. I was, you know, our lactation space was like a dark stairwell, you know, where, mm-hmm. um, where the, the sex noises of the pump, you know, it's like, uh, uh. so I was like, I can't pump yeah. here. Like, I'm having sex. With this stairwell. Um, I felt completely unsupported at work. I felt completely unsupported at home. I felt like having it all meant doing it all, but I still was in pre-consciousness, meaning I had never heard the term second shift, emotional labor, invisible work. Um, so genuinely, I thought it was the weather. Mm-hmm. At 31 years old, when this was happening to me, at, at 32 after having Zach for a year, I kept thinking to myself, oh my gosh, Seth and I are fighting so much because New York is cold. I never yeah. once thought it was because I needed him to you know, be a partner and not just a helper in the home or that all the assumptions because I made less money that domestic, um, you know, labor, uh, childcare, housework would fall on me. None of that was in the background of, of my reality. It was just, oh, it's too cold in New York. So if we move to LA, things will get better. Well, guess what? We moved to LA, we had our second child, and then I had a complete and total breakdown on the side of the road over a text Seth sent me that said, I'm surprised you didn't get blueberries. Mm-hmm. And that's where I start fair play. I start with um, that day in the car. And I want to, we can picture the scene because I don't really get to unpack it. So let's have your listeners help us picture the scene. I'm surprised you didn't get blueberries. That was a text Seth sent me. Uh, Right after Ben, my second son was born. Uh, I had a breast pump and a diaper bag on the passenger seat of my car. I had gifts for a newborn baby to return in the backseat of my car. I had a client contract in my lap because I had since left. Now I say it was forced out, but I had back then I used to say I had opted out of the traditional workforce. I'd started my own firm for quote unquote more flexibility. So I had a pen in between my legs. I was marking up the contract analog. This is the way I still do things. Mm-hmm. Every time I would hit the stop sign because I was racing to get Zach at his, my older son at his toddler transition program, which in America, right, costs basically an arm and a leg and is seven minutes long. So I was racing to pick him up, stopping at every stop sign. And every time I would hit a stop sign, Whitney, my, um, the pen would sort of stab me in the vagina. And so that, that is the metaphor that I remember about that day, just being stabbed in the vagina over and over again by a pen. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and on top of that, getting this text, I'm surprised you didn't get blueberries, um, which sort of knocked the wind out of me. And I pulled over which we don't do lightly in LA, I will say, because of traffic. <laughs> but I remember pulling over saying, okay, I'm going to be late to pick up Zach. Um, but it was just waterfalls of sobbing, um, a, a reckoning, a recognition that I was no longer myself. I didn't recognize myself, but I was the a role. I was the fulfiller of my husband's smoothie needs. I felt like my marriage, it was so cliche that it was ending, going to end over over a fight over off-season blueberries and not, you know, a affair with an NFL player or something more more dramatic and fun. It felt privileged, of course, that I was upset. And, you know, people have things a lot worse. So I kept saying, well, my husband's better than most, you know, so I was making all these excuses for my emotions. Um, and so that, that day um, was the first reckoning I had to say, I do not have the career marriage combo I thought I was going to have, and it was really hard. It was really hard to, 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 to admit that to myself. I just, I see myself so clearly in your story. And I know that so many other women out there see themselves in that story too. 
and this feeling of loss, of disappointment, of rage <laughs> that this is what my life has become. Yeah. Also this feeling that you pointed out of like guilt that you even are so upset over this thing, mm-hmm. you know, like, like mm-hmm. yeah, there are people that are like struggling to pay rent and here yep. I am upset that my husband won't help, like that my husband wants me to be the one that gets the blueberries. Like, ah, I need to just suck it up, you know, yep. but yep. the reality is for many women, myself, you, most working women who are taking on the second shift, the emotional burden, the mental load of their families, it is crushing them in very real ways. And I remember one expert that I talked to just telling me, like, your pain and suffering that you have within your life on different things is not worse or better than anybody else's. It's just different. And so mm-hmm. it's still valid. And so just for our listeners who are hearing this and resonating with this idea of, I shouldn't be complaining so much. I shouldn't even care. I should just kind of accept it or decide this is how it is in life. I'm just going to keep on going in this way in my partnership. Um, Just to challenge that, to say there is actually a better way and a way that feels much less uh, resentful for you every day. And that makes it so that there's actually equity within your house. Absolutely. Absolutely. And look, you know, some people will say, well, how did you go from that place to now? And I, I joke and say, well, I had to write a book about my husband, right? But I think what the journey was that first step of um, just getting from pre-consciousness to consciousness. And so what I say to a lot of women is start where you are now. Um, hold your horses. You know, you don't have to think things are going to be different overnight. If this is the first time you're hearing these concepts, sit with them. Uh digest them because what we're saying today is not a typical trigger warning, but this is, this is really triggering. These are triggering concepts because a lot of what we're going to be talking about today is an unlearning of, of that took me 10 years, frankly, but an unlearning of every single thing, every message I had been given for the first 31 years of my life. And so I think I want the listener, your listeners to be patient with themselves to say, digest this information, see what you think about it. Um, It may bring up rage. It may bring up sadness. It may bring up defensiveness. um, And that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this idea too, you know, with the pandemic and with our mental health, I know that for my husband, for my own partner, that there have been times where he's been really depressed and he hasn't had the bandwidth to be able to do some of these things that I've wanted him to do, needed him to do. And I haven't been able sometimes when I've been really down and out to do the things that he needs me to do to be in equity with him. So I think that's the other piece of this is like addressing what are the things you need to do to create bandwidth within your relationship. So that way you can hold each other accountable and be team players together. on this Absolutely. And that's it. I mean, accountability and trust are, are the most important things um, in any organization and especially our home organization. And I think that's, you know, what was interesting about, I think the other, the other piece of why it's so fun for me to come here and speak to you and your listeners is, you know, private lives are public issues. And I think we've been sold this bill of goods that all we need is like the extra eye cream. We just need to get up an hour earlier, but that those, that that's not going to (laughs) change. Um, burnout. It's not a badge of honor to say having it all means doing it all. And so to recognize that this is really a problem, as you said, that sort of transcends socioeconomic status. It transcends um, race. It transcends, um, all, like I said, class. It transcends even uh, heterosexual couples. This happens in LGBTQIA couples. And what it is, is it's a... Um, you know, it, it, you may not have heard these terms, but the reality is that women hold two thirds or more of what it takes to run a home and family. Um, I called it the, I was the default or the she fault, but it turns mm-hmm. out the she fault has a name. We've been talking about this for a hundred years. I had never was, I never, I consider myself a pretty, you know, open learner and feminist. And still, I'd never heard the term second shift. I had never heard the term emotional labor. I had never heard the term 
Invisible Work, which was coined in 1986 by a sociologist named Arlene Kaplan-Daniels to say that women's work will never inherently be valued because it's done by women. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, we've been having these conversations for many years. And like I said, like to say, it's sh- same shit, different decade. But I do feel like we're finally at a cultural reckoning now where we can start to take agency on our own life to make change. Yeah. Okay. So tell us about the basic framework of fair play. What is fair play? What is fair play? Well, fair play is, I would like to say it's a system, not a list, but it has its beautiful origins in a list uh, called the should I do spreadsheet. Um, It's, it was, it culminated after a breast cancer March that I went on with nine of my very close friends that I talk about in fair play where we're covered in glitter and out and pink outfits on a Saturday morning. Uh, Powerful women, you know, Oscar winning producer and CEOs and just powerful, powerful women um, marching for our friend who had been recently diagnosed. And on this day, after the blueberries, I started to watch what was happening around me. And at mid, uh, midday, the you know, our Cinderella midnight, noon, we all turned into pumpkins, Whitney. We were um, gone for that morning and we started to get inundated with texts and phone calls from our partners with, you know, when are you coming home? Um, from your boondoggle, from the parade. Um, one one funny one was, you know, what's the address of Hudson uh, of the birthday party? Did you leave me a gift? Another um, friend was getting calls um, about uh, where's the soccer bag? You didn't leave the soccer bag in the closet like you said you would for me, um, or a water bottle. Um, my favorite was my friend Kate's husband, uh, his text said, do the kids need to eat lunch? <laughs> and I, I think it was, what happened to me that day was it was not the act of this happening. It was the act of the reactions of the women, which was thanks Eve for making uh, a dim sum reservation, you know, in downtown LA, but um, we're gonna leave because we left our partners with too much to do. Mm-hmm. And so they left me there. They left me to go, you know, find Hudson's soccer bag and to bring a perfectly wrapped gift to a birthday party and to feed their kids lunch. And so before they left, I said, you know, I really, I'll let you leave, but you're going to have to help me count up how many phone calls and texts we've received. And it was 30 phone calls and 46 texts for 10 women over 30 minutes. And I think it was that day where I started to say, you know what? I really want to understand what's happening to us here. And like I said, it turns out that that she fault has a name. It turns out that I quickly found out that women hold two thirds or more of what it takes to run a home and family, regardless of whether we work outside the home. And um, from there, I started to call on those women because I said, you know what? I don't want to live like this anymore. So I opened up Excel like any good woman, uh, type A woman would do. I just started a list with all the tabs on the bottom, I started a list and I said, you know, what, what do you do that takes more than three minutes of your time? And I got, you know, obviously standard things like making school lunches, 10 minutes. I got, um, Girl Scout cookies ordering in sales five hours. I got, um, you know, taking my kids to the dentist an hour. Uh, you know, I started to get, but then I started to get things that made me laugh. Like, um, don't forget elf on the shelf, you know, that's 20 nights times uh, an hour or whatever. And, um, you know, you forgot sunscreen here, Eve. I see sunscreen. You put it at two minutes. But what about 30 minutes for the chase? I'm like, oh, yeah, you're right. I got to put 30 minutes for the chase. And so it just became this really organic, beautiful project where it was the first time in my life. Because remember, this is a long time ago in, in digital time. This is 10 years ago now where there was no crowdsourcing the same way we have on the internet now. Um, We didn't even have iPads um, at that point. And so it was really, it was, I had a Blackberry still. It was just the beginning of, of, of having people like you in our lives. I didn't have that. I didn't have your book. I just had what to expect when you're expecting, which just told me like how to like rub nipple cream on my nipples, but I did not have your Bible. And so I will say that I felt super alone, but that was the first time I actually felt in a community of women by having women I didn't even know start to contribute to the spreadsheet. And then finally, nine months later, I had a 
98 tab spreadsheet of 2000 items of invisible work. That was the should I do spreadsheet. And I finally sent it off to Seth. Um, I still remember the day and it was, um, you know, I think I probably even had to use like a we transfer, you know, it was such a freaking big file, but I, you know, I used all of the, uh, you know, the skills I learned as a Harvard trained mediator. And I say that sarcastically, I just sent it to him with a subject line. Can't wait to discuss. And um, as you can imagine, I didn't get the response I was hoping for. I got, actually, I didn't even get words. You know, I just got one monkey emoji, not even three monkeys. I just got the sad, see no evil monkey emoji that was, you know, sort of covering its eyes or a version, an early version of that, probably pixel pixels back then. Um, but yeah, it was, it was my reckoning that I finally thought, you know, I spent nine months on this. I thought this list was going to save my marriage or change things. And I learned very quickly that lists alone don't work. And so I had a choice. I could resign myself to doing it all and lose myself in the process, or I could get my ass in gear and become my own client. And that's what I did. As I said to you, I'm an HBO show succession mediator. I work for families that look like that. You should feel bad for me. But what I do is I, I work for very difficult organizations. I bring grace and humor and generosity to very difficult organizational financial decisions. And so my number one most important question I ever asked in the past 10 years was, what if we treated our homes as our most important organization? And it changed everything for me from that question. Mm-hmm. I think this idea of this whole list of things that you do, there are so many things that my husband for a long time was not even aware of. You know, it's like he was aware that my kids need to go to the after and before care for (laughs) school this fall, but he wasn't aware that I had to get on the email list two months ahead so that that way I would be informed when the signup happens. That when the sign-up happens, I would have to be sitting at my computer. I would have already had had to sign up for my own account and be refreshing the page. So that way I get one of 50 spots that's there. That when it doesn't work, I have to be texting with my friend to problem solve a like workaround link to get in. And then email the coordinator to say, I just want to make sure that I've reserved my spot because this is Mm -hmm. the key to my happiness for this entire next school year, right? And I was talking with my friend and she goes, yeah. Like, so what'd you say to Scott about what you had to do? I go, oh yeah, I told, I told him I signed up for Y care for the kids and that we got in. I was really excited. She goes, and what do you say back? Great. And she goes, did you tell him all the steps? I go, well, no. I mean, but all of that labor, all of that thinking. And I think, um, I've done the same thing in the past. Like, let me present to you my data spreadsheet of all the crap I do every single day. Don't you feel bad? You should jump in and help. And he looks at me with a blank stare. Like, yeah, it does not work. Spoiler alert, TLDR. Nope, does not work. Um, And I think that that is a very important insight that we all feel that way, that this project could have stopped with a should I do spreadsheet. And that still would have created value for me and women. I think Mm -hmm. just to feel validated that this is actual work that takes time. But what I decided to do, the next step, again, this is before I even decided that this was going to become a book. This was just to start to say, what if as a thought experiment, my curiosity was, well, what if I start to take some of these organizational management principles that I use every day with my most difficult family situations and bring them to the home? And so what I like to say as an organizational management consultant, someone who's, who's steeped in healthy organizations, healthy organizations have three things. They have explicitly defined expectations, fairness and transparency, and you know your role. Well, I'm here to tell you that that none of that exists in the home. Mm-hmm. Um, and also on, on top of that, there's no re- respect and rigor. So what ends up happening is that we are waiting to decide who takes out the dog, right? When it's about to take a piss on the rug. We are setting the table when we're hangry and we're cranky, right? Because we think oh, it's so unfun or why you're talking to me about systems. Well, I'm here to say if you want time back, you want your life back, you want fulfillment back, you want your relationship back, you invest in systems. And so I decided to build a system. And the first question to build a system is what you want from the outcome. So the outcome I wanted was I wanted 
homes that had accountability and trust. Because so many times I heard, well, I might as well just do it myself because the timelines weren't missed or someone would say I could, I would never, he could never, you know, get on in time to get one of the 50 spots, right? It's, this is hetero cisgender mm-hmm. primarily. And we'll talk about how LGBTQIA families also, you know, have these, these, these are our capitalist or patriarchal culture. It affects all of us, I will say, mm-hmm. but the, what I needed to understand was what were the hurdles to getting to that fairness. And what I realized was it was similar to what you just said, Whitney, in a way that we weren't unpacking the labor. We were saying, oh, I did this, signing up and, you know, move on. And we're too busy to really unpack it. And so what ended up happening was when I went back to the should I do spreadsheet and I started to ask couples of all walks of life, like who, uh, to, you know, takes the kids to school, who gets the groceries. It kept being both, both, both. We both do it. We both do it. Mm-hmm. We both do it. And I kept saying, okay, that's confusing to me because both is a word you never want to hear in organizational management. It's a terrible word. Um, it reminds me of when I was at Ruth Chris once, a steakhouse, and uh, two waiters presented themselves to us and say, we're both here to take your order. And then I didn't get my steak. Um, it's just, it's the opposite of the way businesses do things now with something called the directly responsible individual or context, not control where you're in charge of an ownership mindset. So I got really troubled by the word both. And I said, that's the opposite of a healthy organization. So I needed to unpack what did both mean? So I started to ask the second most important question I ever asked in the past 10 years. And I asked it in 17 countries and that was, how did mustard get into your refrigerator? It was the most impactful, or not even some countries didn't have refrigeration, um, but it was, and it's, it, was, it wasn't always mustard, it was different condiments. But the good news is condiments are everywhere, so you can get a good sense. And what I heard over and over again, and this is even in the Nordic countries where everybody thinks it's all perfect, I heard the same dynamic in the hetero cisgender relationships, Sociologists will call this the saturation point where you can start predicting what people say. I'm sure you feel that way as a pediatrician. You can start predicting what your patients are going to say to you at different stages of their life. And what I heard was I noticed that my second son, Johnny, wasn't eating his protein without mustard. Um, He would choke it down otherwise. And I said, oh, okay, I know that step in project management, sort of this organizational management world. We call that conception. And then I would hear from women. uh, Yeah. And then I monitor that mustard for when it's running low and I get stakeholder buy-in from everybody else for what they need for the grocery list. I mean, they didn't actually say stakeholder buy-in, but that's (laughs) what I was looking for. And I know that phase super well, that's called planning. And then what I would hear is, oh yeah. And then my, um, my, my partner goes to the store um, to pick up the French's yellow mustard Um, but the dude brings home spicy Dijon every fucking time. And Eve, you're telling me I need accountability and trust for on my living will or to sign up for aftercare. Hell no, because, um, I, I can't even get him to, to trust him with bringing home the right type of mustard. That was it over and over and over and over again. And so that organizational failure is something that's actually easily fixable splitting up the conception and planning from the execution is the opposite of intrinsic motivation. It's the opposite of ownership mindset. And so once I recognize that if we can start as a culture to understand that the conception and planning are as important as the execution, and we can keep them together with one person, not only will women get a less encumbered mind, but men will inherently get their standards will raise. They will have um, more control and autonomy over and know their role because that was the number one thing men in heterosis gender relationships said to me. I don't do more in the home because I can't get anything right. I don't know my role. And who wants to live like that either? So that's why fair play became a love letter to men because I said, in a way, I almost would rather be burdened with all the work because at least I have the context, but I can't imagine walking in and having no context. One man in white plains, when he told me that he was divorcing over a glue stick. And we can unpack that in a whole different episode, but it is this 
context, not control, or these, I call it in fair play, not nagging, because that's too gendered of a term, but I call it the rat fuck, the random assignment of a task. Your home gets invaded by rats. You're not going to want to live there. And so many men are given these, pick up the mustard, no context, go get the glue stick, no context. I wouldn't remember, sign on to this website at 7am. Shit, I forgot. I have no idea why I'm even doing this. And that is an unhealthy organization. So I realized very shortly that the key to fair play was just that. It's not rocket science. It is when you own a task, not has to be forever. It could be for one day. It could be for 10 days. It could be for two weeks. It could be for an hour. Like watching our kids, we trade, we redeal that task every hour. Um, the toddler, because she's a pain in the ass. Um, <laughs> but we love her. It is, it is about you own that. You own it from conception to planning to execution. And that's it. That's the um, that's the Atkins. It's a don't eat sugar mindset. So yes, it's different the way you do it. Uh, you won't always be perfect at it. It's a practice, but that's the concept. It is time to run, not walk, to your bookstore or have your fingers do whatever is the equivalent of running to the Amazon store, to online, to purchase our new book. It's called The Working Mom Blueprint, Winning at Parenting Without Losing Yourself. It is a labor of love. I'm so excited to deliver this book baby to you and to help you really feel like you are winning at parenting without losing yourself, mama. If you want to also check it out at the library, it's there, borrow it from a friend. However, I just want you to get this solid information so you can start thriving, not just surviving in motherhood. And there's this whole part of it, which I think is the like married sister of it, or the, I don't know, the sister, the cousin of it, which is the minimum standard of care that mm-hmm. you talk about. Talk about that because I think most people as they're listening to this are going, yeah, but how do I know then he's not going to get the, spi- the spicy mustard for the kids? Mm-hmm. How do I know he's not going to feed them like cake for dinner? How do I know he's yep. actually going to like change the oil in the car, whatever, you know, at a time that actually works for us. So how do you make it so that both parties have accountability to complete the task in a way that feels good for the entire household? That's a great question. And that's what a system is. The difference between a system and a list is, yes, you could use the fair play book and cards and just say, I'm fucking sick of this. You take auto, right? That's not going to work. That's a list. That's using treating the card metaphor as a list. And that doesn't work. A system is when you are working, as I said earlier, in a place that ultimately the outcome is explicitly defined expectations, fairness and transparency, and where you know your role. To be in an organizational system where you can feel those things requires work. So I wish I could be here and wave a magic wand and say, um, you can be healthy tomorrow. But no, most people are going to say, just start walking, not 10,000 steps, start with like 500 steps a day. After the pandemic, I needed to start with literally 750 steps. I had like zero steps when I started to wear uh, like one of these tracking watches. Um, And now I'm back up to like getting at least 5,000 steps a day. So it is a practice. It takes time. But the way you start, is exactly what you said. There are certain concepts I'd love to introduce to your listeners. So if you treat it like a list, it's going to work like a list. What we have to do when we are treating our home as our most important organization is start to communicate about the home in a way that um, brings the respect and the rigor to these unpaid labor tasks. But before I even get there, and I want to talk about communication. We can finish and we can we can really dig into communication and what we are communicating about, how you bring someone to the table, why these conversations are hard. But now that you own the system, now you understand the system, the ownership mindset, I do want to say that the secret formula is not just the system itself. It is the boundaries and the communication that are the sandwich for the system. So the first thing that has to happen to even come to the table to believe this could work is... As women, we have to believe our time is equally valuable to our partner's time. And I talk a lot about that in the book because women were not even willing to ask for what they need because they were saying things to me that I call C-I-Y-O-O, which is my annotation for complicit in your own oppression. It is 
a societal problem that we treat and value men's time as if it's finite and women's time as if it's infinite. Uh, like sand, men's time is diamonds. We know this because if women enter a male profession, salaries automatically go down. Pediatricians are paid less than surgeons because it's, it's a women's field. We know this. We know that women's time is not valued um, the same as men's time. Um, even though I'd argue that some random shoulder replacement for like a 90-year-old is way less important than what you're doing, uh, raising healthy kids on a daily basis. Um, so it has nothing to do with value. It just has to do with with sexism um, and racism and other isms. But the other thing, you, we know that society doesn't value women's time because for years there were campaigns that said breastfeeding is free. It's fucking right. not free for me. That was hours and hours and hours of my time. But the worst was the way women devalue their own time. So before we can even get to communication, how you start to implement the system, I'm here to tell your listeners that I need to know whether you believe you have a permission to be unavailable from your roles. Do you believe that you deserve to be more than a parent, a partner, and a professional? Do you believe that you deserve the right to unencumbered time for things that you love, sustained attention for things that you love? Because if we devalue our own time, then we won't even believe that we that we can change things and, and assert it differently. And the way it plays out insidiously in our in how we're complicit in our own oppression is when women say things like, I do more unpaid labor because my husband makes more money than me. Um, that's a terrible argument because women will always make less money, as I just mm -hmm. said, um, until we can fix the caregiving bias, which needs men to do it. So it's a big loop. So we can't use that term. Um, and it wasn't working for me because just because I chose philanthropy and my husband chose private equity just definitely doesn't mean that I deserve to take on all the unpaid labor of my home forever. The other thing that happens is women often say the science proves that their job is more flexible. So a woman's a lawyer, a man is a doctor, vice versa. Uh, the woman's the lawyer, the man's the doctor. You um, or the woman's a doctor, the man's a lawyer. She she will say that her job is more flexible, whatever job that is. Um, the other way that we devalue our own time is we say things like we're better multitaskers, that women are we're wired differently for care. That's fundamentally untrue. There's no gender difference in our brains for how we multitask. Um, we often say things like, in the time it takes me to tell him, her, they what to do, I should do it myself. That one I had to unpack with a behavioral economist who said that you're completely devaluing your future time if you say that. Um, my favorite are people in the same jobs. Yeah, we're both two colorectal surgeons. This is a true story. But my husband is better at focusing on one task at a time. He's super overwhelmed. He is um, ADHD, he has, um, anxiety and I can find the time. Mm -hmm. I guess what I'm here to say is like, unless we're Albert Einstein, right. And we know how to fuck with the space time continuum or we're just <laughs> in his phallic penis plane, uh, rocket ship. We, we, we can't, we can't, um, alter the space time continuum. We actually can't find time, but there's just a different expectation over how women are supposed to use our time. And so we, this requires your, own deep work to recognize that you're, you deserve equal time choice over how you use your day as your partner. And that, that's the, the triggering part is I had to believe Whitney, I had to believe in the, in the, in, in, in my core of core that I had to throw out all these messages about what I'd been told and say to myself, Seth gets three hours after our kids go to bed to check PowerPoint watch sports center and work out. Whereas I'm in doing things in service of our house till the second my head hits the pillow at midnight. And that's fundamentally unfair. And I'm a game changer in my own life. And if I, if we want to stay in this marriage, it's not going to be like that anymore. Amen. I mean, the, I think that is the fundamental thing. It's about your worth. You call it, you know, making time and space for your unicorn. Space. Yes. Um, you know, it modern mommy doc, we have a, a, a different kind of like framework for it, but it's all the same. It's this idea of like, you matter as a person, you aside from all the things you have to do are valuable. And you're just as valuable as your partner. I have fallen into that trap all the time. And I think it's perpetuated also, of course, by our society, right? My mother-in-law, oh, Lord Lover will be like, oh, Scott, he worked so hard. And like, Hello, over here. You know, um, do you take a nap? I, That's what my, yeah. my mother likes to ask that. When, if, when did you get to take your nap? I was like, is anybody going to ask me when I get to take a nap on the weekend? Yeah. 
or Mother's Day. Like I, I gotta go take a nap. That was a hard morning. I'm like, and now I'm responsible for like after this brunch I didn't even want to go to. I'm responsible for taking care of my kids the rest of the day. I mean, it's just, it's just these assumptions, right? The assumptions over, like you said, um, women's time and 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 the the science shows this. This is not just me espousing this. Um, Fair Play is a book that took so long to write because the research was extremely rigorous. And we, we know that men take um, double the leisure time as women. And they also do five to 15 hours, week, hours a week less um, housework and childcare after kids come along. Mm-hmm. So things, things do not get better once you have kids that they, they fundamentally get worse if you're not willing again to assert your worth. And again, I think that's where we intersect. We intersect about um, these beautiful frameworks to say that, you know, everything around you, your caregiving, everything that that actually is secondary to the uninterrupted time and attention for what makes you you, because that that eudaimonia that's called eudaimonic well being that's linked to your longevity, your mental health, and actually your ability to care for others. And so that's why I said I love your modern mommy talk and everything everything that you stand for, Whitney. Yeah. Okay, so answer me this question because I think this is the most common uh, resistance that I get to your work and to things that I do too. People say, well, why should it be that women have to be the one that starts this conversation? Doesn't that just put more labor on a woman to have to be the one that then like gets out the cards, goes through the book with her partner, starts this whole conversation. And I know exactly what I say to them, but I would love to hear what you say to people who bring up that argument. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And obviously in an ideal world, um, it wouldn't be that way. But why I chose to write to women is because you just need one game changer. You need one game changer. And, And if you are waiting for someone else to have that conversation, just like if you're waiting for paid leave or universal childcare to no one is coming to save us um, except for ourselves. And, and, and I don't mean that you, I'm here to tell you, you have to fix your own life. But what I am here to tell you is that you have agency over your own life. You have agency to say, and that's the thing. Fair play is a game. It is a game that involves and requires two players and three players. If you include your state legislature and four players, if you include hopefully federal policies, but this is, the system itself requires two players. Yes, the upfront work to enter that system is usually put on the oppressed. That's often how change works. The people who are oppressed are the ones who make the change. Um, the right to vote for women uh, was not, um, men were not marching in the street for that. You know, so that is what I what I like to say, that we can wait, but no one's coming to save us. And so what I found was that I didn't want to be a martyr in my own life. I didn't want to, yeah, you know, the most empowered, impactful women I had ever been across were divorced women who said that they couldn't converse about these issues. They just had to get shared custody. And then their partner had to do the work. I liked Seth. I wanted to try to see, to stay in this marriage. I had been a a product of a single mother. I saw how hard that was for her. So the way I like to look at it is, yes, there are some individual upfront investments, but I look at it as an investment and not a burden. This is an investment the same way that working with Modern Mommy Doc and actually looking and understanding your values and your core compass and who you are and what makes you you, that is not a burden. That is an investment in who you are. And the same way that if you want to invest in your self-care, you know, you probably have to start you know, running or journaling or, or doing something, going to therapy, just like if you want to invest in your fitness, you want to probably start, you know, doing some cardio or strength training. Like this is the same thing. It is the same thing. It's just an investment in your relationship um, that, that we don't ever, ever ask for before because we've been told as a society that we don't deserve it. Yes, uh, for sure. And I think in the same vein, the other feedback that I've gotten from people that I've shared your work with is this idea of you have to go through a hundred cards yes, like yes, you all do. the time. Are you kidding me? 
So I would love to hear in your relationship how you do the reshuffling, like how you decide there needs to be a reshuffling, or do you have weekly meetings where you come back together? Like, how do you, because I yeah, think people can get yeah, behind one practical. time practical. doing it, but mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> we'll go really practical now. So the practical nature of fair play is the system requires uh, significant onboarding. But I'm here to tell you, if you've ever worked in HR, what you find is that the more you invest in your onboarding, the less you need to invest in the system going forward. You're going to pay Paul to pay Piper, whatever that weird expression is. Um, the, The same way people say, I can't sit and communicate about domestic life this way. I had one woman say that to me. I'm a powerful COO. I just, I don't have the time to invest in these conversations. But then, you know what, Whitney, she said to me, I literally... It was like, you can't make this stuff up. It was in one of my moleskins. 20 minutes later in the conversation, she tells me that every time her partner forgets to put the laundry in the dryer, she dumps it on his pillow. And so I kept thinking, you're investing in communicating. You are communicating. You're investing in communicating. It's just toxic communication. So don't tell me you're not investing in communication. How about the fact that I stumbled? Because And if, you, if your listeners out there ever find anything... DM me. I love all this stuff. I keep giant, giant spreadsheets. I'm a hoarder of research. Um, anything you see out there. But one one woman, Kay, who listened to a podcast out there said to me, she screenshot and said, you have to be a fly in the wall in this group. It was a group called The Reasons I Hate My Husband and My Kids During COVID. 27,000 member Facebook group. Someone created this with active posters. Talk about time, invested time. 27,000 members talking about how much they hate their, their partners and their kids during COVID. One woman says, if my partner dies during COVID, it won't be because of the disease, disease. It'll be because of me. Very intense statement. So I DM her and say, I would love to understand how you communicate about domestic life given this post. She writes back. We don't communicate about domestic life. It's too triggering. We don't have time. So let's just reflect that publicly threatening to murder her partner on a public forum where I could find her was considered a safer space to communicate than actually sitting down and investing time with your partner. People invest more time in hand sanitizer and meditation than they do in the practice of communicating. So that's what fair play is. It is a system that actually teaches you how to communicate. The cards are just a tool. They are a fun way to feed you spinach to say, sit down and tell your stories. It does not start with who does what. The practical nature of fair play is is extensive onboarding. And the extensive onboarding is sitting down to build your deck together. And when you do that, it takes time because each and every conversation that I ask you to have is over what you, how you view that card, what stories you have from your childhood about that card and what your minimum standard of care is with that card. And it sounds like a lot because there's a hundred cards, but I will say most couples are aligned on many things and there ends up being about seven to 15 triggering cards that take extra conversation. So don't get scared that you'll be there for 10 hours. You obviously you can take breaks, you can come back, but the process, the onboarding is meant to take a lot of time because then that investment allows you to save time over a lifetime of housework and childcare. So that's it. Step one is you have your conversation, you tell your stories, you come up with your minimum standard of care for the cards that are in your deck and you build it together. Then you take a halftime break you forget about it because you don't want to be assigning and trigger, getting triggered about who does what before you've aligned on what matters to you. And then when you come back to decide who does what, um, what I found is most people end up liking to do certain things. And like I like to do gifts, so that stays in my arsenal forever. But there are certain cards that I call the daily grinds, which typically fall on women that nobody likes. And that are, those are the ones that you get into a rhythm of redealing. So the way it works for Seth and me, watching is our hardest card. We do not like watching our toddler, as I said earlier. So he's in charge of Anna on Saturdays. I'm in charge of Anna on Sundays. 
And by in charge, it doesn't mean like texting this Anna need to eat lunch. It means knowing where her diapers are. It means knowing her plans. How do you do that? You got, it all goes back to that communication. It is about not dumping the wet clothes in your partner's pillow. It is not about being on that Facebook forum saying why you hate your partner. It's about taking that energy instead and focusing it as an investment in the practice of communicating with your partner. I love, I love that. And if you guys want more tips on non-toxic communication with your partner and how to do that in the Working Mom Blueprint, we talk about that pretty extensively yeah. in our on-demand programs too. Working Mom Blueprint is literally, the communication steps there, I mean, are, are their gold. I mean, I really think what you say is gold and, um, and everyone should read it for, for everything. But I think especially because communication is always such a, a sticking point. And so we, we all need help. We need help being able to bring our best selves to our, our conversations. Eve, it has been so wonderful to talk with you. You guys, there's more in here. She has a whole question and answer section in the back, um, places that people get kind of tripped up and what are the fixes for those. So um, I would so encourage you, please go out, purchase it, borrow it, Mm -hmm. read it, share it with a friend. Fair Play by Eve Rodsky. Eve, thanks so much for being here today. Thank you. Hey, Mama, if you want more of the Modern Mommy Dog podcast, make sure that you click subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. We'd also be so honored if you shared with your friends and on social media with the hashtag Modern Mommy Dog. If you share about something that inspired you or that you learned from the podcast, we'll be sure to share it on our social media as well. Thanks for listening.